John, it's interesting when I think about the the relationship between a client and their financial professional. And there are so many conversations that are had over time. And and at the end of the day, at the end of those conversations, oftentimes goals or recommendations are documented and and the client leaves that meeting and, and there are action items on his or her part. And I think it's interesting because some clients immediately run and cross off their list. But I think if if we were speaking with financial professionals, many would tell us that actually helping clients execute and cross those items off the list can be challenging. It can be time consuming. Is that a conversation that you've had over time? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Brendan Fraser makes the point that the emphasis after the development of the advice should be on execution, right? How do we get people to actually take action. And I had to laugh, Julie, because he mentioned his kids several times during our interview. I always think about our, my kids, right? They're all now in their 20s and using reverse psychology, like saying, hey, we need your room to be cleaned up in a week, but I know you'll never do it. You know, so he didn't bring out that technique, but, you know, who knows? But I think developing a process of follow-up and setting proper expectations can make the difference because the best developed plan in the world will not make a difference if none of the recommendations are ever implemented. It's so true. And I think what often happens is the financial professional really starts to fill the role of a coach or an accountability partner to clients and helping them really cross those items off the list and implement their to-do plan. So I'm excited to share with our listeners today, Julie, the, the conversation that you and I had with Brendan Frazier about steps that financial professionals can take to better increase the odds that their clients will actually implement the key steps to financial success that come as a part of our financial recommendation. So Julie, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about our podcast guest today, Brendan Frazier. Brendan is the founder of Wired Planning, the host of the Human Side of Money podcast, a keynote speaker, and was named one of Investopedia's top 100 financial advisors. He's building a global community and training program for advisors to master the human side of advice, enhance their clients' lives, and forever change the trajectory of their business. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Brendan, welcome today to our Human-Centric Investing Podcast. We're delighted to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Brendan, I think, you know, for most financial professionals, it's probably most disappointing When we feel like we understand our clients' goals, we feel like we're all pulling on the same oar, we make some phenomenal recommendations. And yet people only implement one or two of the five, six, or seven things that we ask them to implement. So, you know, when we think about that human side of advice, I know when we've had conversations in the past, you've talked about one of our goals is using that human side of advice to change behavior. And so that's what we'd like to talk to you about on today's uh, podcast. So I guess first question from a very high level, how would we use the human side of things, the emotional side of things to impact the way people either make decisions or implement 
decisions that have already been made. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about something that's, uh, that I'm passionate about because like you said, you just described perfectly the scenario that I think everybody's felt in some way, shape or form or at some time, which is, Hey, we had this great meeting. Uh, they showed me their goals. I told them exactly what they need to do to accomplish what they just told me was important to them. Right. Like they said, Hey, this is what I want to do. I said, great. Boom, boom, boom. Do these three things and you'll get there. And you fast forward six months or a year later and it hasn't, and they haven't done, maybe they've done, maybe they've done one, maybe they've done two. You know, everybody has the clients that just knock it out and execute every time, right? But like, generally speaking, it's like, why are they not doing? Like, they know how important this is. They know it's exactly how they get to where they want to go. Like, what's happening here? And it's so frustrating because you would think that all you need to do is just tell somebody what to do, and they'll follow through and do it. You refer, you alluded to it a second ago, but yeah, the, there's a study from FA Mag, Financial Advisor Magazine, um, that seventy percent of clients will implement one out of five recommendations. And so that's one of those stats. Every time I've heard it, every time when I first heard it, I went, Whoa, how do we not know more about this? How is this not more widely known? And then you take a step back and you go, well, that's because it doesn't feel very good to hear that one of five, one of five recommendations is being implemented. And so I think it kind of just gets shoved down. So I've tried to make it a mission of mine to raise awareness around that and say, Hey, look guys, but it's not just enough to give somebody advice and tell them what to do. We have to learn how to change their behavior to get them to actually do it. Because the best advice, the perfect advice, the best plan, the flawless financial plan in the absence of execution is it's useless. It's like building a house and never moving in. It may look good, right? It may feel good about it, but it's not actually doing anything for you. And so what we don't think about enough, I think, is like the fact that getting people, we think it's enough to just give advice and expect people to follow through and implement. What we need to realize is that people don't have, generally speaking, human beings don't have an information problem. We have an execution problem. Information is not sufficient to change behavior. All you have to do is look at the obesity rates, business failure rates, the failure of marriage, divorce rates. I guess that's probably a better way to say failure of marriage is to call it divorce, right? It's like we, we there's no shortage of information out there on how to have a thriving marriage, on how to have a successful business, on how to get in great shape. But, but despite all that, we still have these lingering problems. So it's not an information problem. It's an execution problem, which means that telling somebody what to do and giving them the information of what to do is just simply not enough. It's not going to get the job done. The problem is, is that changing behavior, getting people to change their behavior requires a completely different skill set than delivering advice. It's not a financial planning problem. It's a behavior problem and it's a people problem. Uh, and so I think that is, first of all, it's, for, it's important to acknowledge that this is the, that it's the case. It's important to acknowledge that it's hard for people to do the things that they are supposed to do, but don't want to do. And we're not talking about, oftentimes we're not talking about like, Hey, you have this problem. And if you do this, it'll immediately solve the pain that you have. It's oftentimes we're playing, we're, we're oftentimes giving advice that there, it's going to take a while to see progress. It's going to take a while to see the impact or so like you show somebody how much they need to save to get to retirement. And right. And they say, they, they save $500 for the first time. And it's like, well, good job. But you still got a ways to go. So you don't really see the impact. It's delayed gratification or you put an insurance policy in place. It's like, okay, great. Every time I pay that bill every month, I'm like, gosh, that's so annoying, but you have to have it, right? Or estate planning is the one that people mention all the time. So we're not dealing with advice that people are just ready and eager to implement. It's the stuff that's harder to implement because it's not securing 
an immediate problem. It's more preventative in nature than it is curative. Right. So the, I say all that to say this, I'll wrap it up with this because this is what I've kind of recognized from the work that I've done with clients from talking to experts like Moira Summers and then Brad Klontz and others out there is that the one thing we need to do first and foremost, when we, when we think about this is change and shift our mindset to say, it's no longer enough to just deliver and give advice. We need to assume that the advice that we're giving isn't going to be implemented. We need to design our advice with the assumption of non-adherence to what we're giving. Now, that doesn't mean that you're ever, no one's ever going to implement. It just means we need, instead of, instead of delivering advice with the assumption that they will do everything, we flip it and say, how do I design and deliver advice with the assumption that they're probably not going to implement what I'm telling them to do? So Brendan, can you tell us a little bit more about frictionless advice? I'm really curious. It's interesting after a financial professional has delivered this list of goals or, you know, activities, how do they continue to help a client implement that along the way? Yeah. So there's a number of things that you can do, right? I'm going to stress this again. It first of all, starts with the mindset of changing the mindset and saying, Hey, they're probably not going to, I can't understate how important that is. Uh, but then from there, yeah, one of the key principles or one of the key things you have to recognize is that your ideas are never as great as their ideas. Now this also, this doesn't just go for your planning relationships, your client relationships. It goes for all areas of life, right? So anytime I'm talking about this or giving a presentation, an audience, anybody that has kids knows exactly what you're talking about, right? Where it's like, Hey, you can tell them what to do. And not only are they probably not going to do it, they're going to be resistant to it and do the exact opposite. Now, our clients aren't like our kids, but they're still human beings like our kids. And by nature, the way we're wired, what we know from psychology is that telling somebody what to do is the least effective way to get them to do it. Now, it's the easiest on us, right? Just tell them what to do, hope that they do it. But it's the least effective way to get them to do it. I can't tell you how many times I've come in. I've like walked in and told my wife, like I've said that, Hey, babe, listen to this idea that I had. What do you think if we do this? And she's looking at me like, I literally told you we should do this like a month ago. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, a month ago, I didn't think it was a great idea, but now I think it's a great idea. So I'm fully bought in. That's the same thing that you, you we have to think about and, and bring to our relationship with our clients is not tell, giving them our ideas. I mean, it's, it's kind of where the, the Jedi mind trick thing comes in. Yes, ultimately, it's your idea. It's your recommendation and your analysis and your advice. But you have to get them to believe that it was their idea. You have to try to cultivate the conviction in them that, this, that it's their idea, that they think that's what's best to do. And so naturally the question becomes, okay, how do I do that? Right? Well, it's just by simply asking them questions, right? So you've gone through, you've, you've gone through their situation. You've crunched the numbers, you've done the analysis and you come to the point where it's time to start. You make some recommendations on, Hey, here are the things that we see, some things we think you should address for just to keep it simple and high level in a way that most people understand. And then you start asking questions about what, what would you like to do for, what do you think we should do first? What's most important for you to tackle first? Let them tell you what's important to them because they're going to tell you the thing that's most pressing to them, which means they're going to be more likely to do it because it's their idea and they know that it's important. And then what we also know is that, pro or mo that progress creates momentum. So do one thing, you're more likely to do the second. Do the second, you're more likely to do the third. So kickstart by having them tell you what's most important to them that they want to do. And start there so that they're bought in and they're ready to do it. And it creates momentum so that the second and the third tasks are easier to follow through on. The second thing I'll say around cultivating conviction is not just conviction around that, that it's their idea, but also conviction around why they're doing it. So, for example, uh, it's one thing to save for retirement. It's one thing to save $500 a month if you're saying, hey, I'm saving $500 a month to retire. 
that's good. That's what somebody wants to do. They want to retire. So you say, hey, save $500 a month. And that's mildly inspiring, I guess. You're like, yeah, okay, I can retire one day. But but contra- contrast that with you want to save $500 a month to retire or do you want to save $500 a month so that you can spend and maximize the time you have left with your grandkids by going to Disney World twice a year, take, and spending your time at all the parks, staying at the Swan and Dolphin Hotel and playing game nights as a family when your kids go to bed? And it's like, you can hear the difference in that, right? Give me a good reason to save and I'm going to be much more motivated to do it. Get, cultivate my conviction to do it. Give me a real why behind it. And I'm more likely to do it. I don't want to, for me, it's like, I don't work out because I want to be in great shape. Like, yes, I mean, maybe I do want to be in good shape. That's fine. Ultimately, my big why, my motivator, my driver behind working out that gets me to actually push through and do it is I want to be present and active with my kids as they're growing up. They're four and two years old. All it takes is like 10 minutes. If I'm not working out, all it takes is like 10 minutes. I've got nothing left to give. I want to be able to be present and active. We have two boys too, by the way. So they're always ready to go. And so for me, it's not what I want. It's not, yeah, I want to get in good shape. It's more about why I want it. It's because I want to be present and active. And that's the motivation that gets me to actually get up in the morning or follow through and do it. And the same thing goes for advice. Don't just talk, don't just tie the recommendation to what somebody wants to do. Don't tell them they're saving to retire. Let it remind them, make the connection say, this is, you're saving $500 so that you can maximize the time you have with your family, maximize the time that you're spending with your family. If they've told you that that's important to them. Brendan and Julie mentioned it, but one of the things I think uh, in terms of the role of a financial professional is that of an accountability partner. So as you talk about kind of getting people to take those first steps, how important is it to have a system of follow-up? Um, how do you begin to design a follow-up system? And then a crucial question, do you set the client's expectation ahead of time in terms of what to expect when we work together? So would you say you're going to be hearing from me in a certain amount of time? Do you do you put time frames? I, I had a colleague who once said, "Inspect what you expect." Right. So, do you do you put time frames on a client in terms of, you know, what you've asked them to commit to? I mean, it seems to me like it's a two way street, right? If you're asking yeah. me to commit my help as advisor to helping you, then can I ask your commitment in making this a success? I, so that whole follow-up process, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's two great points there. So first I'll talk about the um, accountability piece of being an advisor, and then I'll go into the follow-up process and how you do that and if it's appropriate to set time constraints. Uh, it's, so it's funny, you guys may be familiar, but have you seen the Vanguard Alpha study where they go through and they figure out what the percentage alpha is for somebody working with an advisor versus somebody that doesn't? Mm-mm. Okay. All right. So Vanguard does this study. They say, all right, what's the value of an advisor annualized year over year? They come out and they say it's 3%. So if you have an advisor, it's supposed to add 3% alpha to your returns every single year. And they can break down the reasons or the components of that to say, here's how they add that value. Well, there's six categories, six things that an advisor does. The number one, well, I'll let you guess. Do you know, want to guess what the number one thing is? The number one driver of that out 3% alpha is? Is it accountability? Behavioral coaching and behavioral management. And it's not just number one. It's literally half of the 3%. Remember, there's six total. So half of the 3% of the, the value of an advisor is the behavioral management, behavioral coaching element. And what I always say, and I always stress, is that you can't just expect to walk into the office tomorrow and deliver 
one and a half percent value changing behavior because you don't know how to change behavior. We've already said it's a different skill set. So you can't just roll out of bed and deliver behavioral change and behavioral management value. So you're right. It's a crucial piece and a crucial component of the relationship. Uh, some, it's one of those things too, where it's good to hear the numbers, but anybody that's been in the business long enough knows that that's a big key component of what they do is holding people accountable to do the things that they need to do that they may not do otherwise. You know, you, 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 all you have to do is spend a week in this business or work with somebody for a couple of days to realize that that's a big component of your value. Right? So, I, so I always stress, like, don't think that you can just wake up and be an accountability partner, wake up and be somebody that changes behavior. You've got to hone and develop those skills. Now, to the follow-up question or to your question about a follow-up system and, and deadlines. Right? So, yeah, I think it's 100% appropriate and effective to give to have a deadline nothing makes you more productive than the last minute right we know psychology tells us that people put off decisions until they're forced to make a decision so you're not doing this in a way that you're um forcing them into something that they're not comfortable with if i will go back to what i said a second ago you're not actually giving somebody a deadline. You're going to let them create the deadline that they're comfortable with. Once again, you're not telling them what to do. You're letting them tell you. So how do you do that? Well, the best way to do it is to take whatever recommendation you have. Let's say it's, um, yeah, I'm going to, I need to get my estate planning in order. I need to, first thing I need to do, you ask, here's a, another example of how you get people to implement. They say, I want to, I need to get my estate planning in order. That's a big task. <clears throat> so just say, okay, what's the next smallest step you think you need to take to get that process in motion? Well, I suppose I probably need to get in touch with an attorney, email or call them and, and get a meeting set up. Okay, great. So now we're not just talking about getting estate planning done. We've broken it down into a ne the next task, the next thing that you can do. Again, once again, that'll create momentum. But now let's think about, okay, let's not leave it open-ended. How do we set a deadline around that? And the way you do that is you ask, is it unreasonable to think that you could have that done by next Friday? Is next Friday, too, is next Friday too soon to get that done? And pick, I'm just picking next Friday. Pick a week out. Pick the end of this week. But what you, and you're, it's not, can you do this by Friday? You're trying to get them to say no. Because we know that our brain loves, craves control. Our brain wants to answer no. It lets us feel in control like we're making the decision. All you have to do is ask my two-year-old who says no at every chance that he can get because all he wants is control in his life. So we'll ask him if he wants ice cream. And he's like, no. Yes, yes, yes. And he has a backtracks, but he has this instinct to say no to everything. People, people grow up, but they're the same way. People want to say no so they know they have control. So is it unreasonable to, to think you could have it done by next Friday? Is it asking too much to do it by next Friday? And most of the time they're going to say, no, no, I can do it. I can get it done by next Friday. And now they've told you that they can do that. You're not telling them to get it done by next Friday. You're literally asking for them to set the deadline in a way that you're giving them control to do it. That makes so much sense. I'm curious in the studies that you've you've read and been a part of and, and the conversations that you've had with so many financial professionals, does it make sense, say the financial professional creates this list of goals and, and the, the client has committed to them because it's on you know their terms and their, their deadline, but there are still three or four or five or many more than that that need to be done. Does it make sense when a financial professional is following up with a client to enter through the, what I'm gonna call the accomplishment door first? And what I mean by that is, to acknowledge the progress that the client has made first versus, hey, I, there's still three things on the list that you need to do. I just wanted to remind you kind of that negative side of things versus acknowledging, I understand you've made connection with that estate attorney. You had a great conversation. 
Shall we talk about the other the other steps that are next in the process? Does that make a difference from a mindset and a motivation standpoint to kind of acknowledge the success initially and then build on that versus kind of swooping in, which I think so much of us are wired to do in financial services is, hey, those here's still the things remaining on the to-do list. Let's attack those right now. Yeah. Uh, so I've kind of a general life principle where if I don't really actually know the answer to something based on evidence or research or science, then I'll, I'll just straight up say, I don't know. But, but that being said, I, it makes a lot of sense, right? We all want to like feel good about ourselves first, remind ourselves of the things that we've done. There's a, uh, I had a guest on the podcast who talked about solution focused therapy. It's a, it's a modality that's used in therapy circles where the whole intent, whole idea behind it. And, and if anybody's actually like therapist or trained in this, I'm not going to explain it the way that it's properly explained, but I'm going to try to get the gist out there. And the idea behind it is that by, by reminding yourself or by thinking back on the successes that you've had times where you've done the things that you're supposed to do times where you have like followed through, you're creating more belief and hope in what they call self-efficacy that you can actually, you can do it again, right? So you, you, it's, a, it's a powerful technique to get somebody to go back and reflect on times in the past where they've done what they need to do in the present because it reminds them that they've done it before. So uh, from that standpoint, in my mind, it makes a lot of sense to do that because not only are you not starting by at saying, hey, you, why, aren't you, why haven't you gotten this done? But you're starting with a reminder of their accomplishments and building their belief and self-efficacy that they can actually follow through and do it. There's also what you said reminded me of. Um, I'm going to give credit where credit's due here. Tim Maurer, uh, who does a lot of great work in this space as well. He, when he was on the podcast, he said that he never gives more than three action items or recommendations at a time. Again, this is one of those things. It's like a really simple idea. It makes a lot of sense when you hear it, but I, the majority of the people I know don't do that. They just give all of them at one time, and so he'll only do. They'll only focus on three at a time, and as soon as they're knocked out, then they go to the next three. But it's like, hey, let's keep this small and manageable, and then knock these out so you don't feel overwhelmed, so you don't feel like there's too much to do. Um, but yeah, so, so to answer your question, I think that that I think it makes a lot of sense to start that way. I just I just don't know. I can't point to any research or experience and doing it that way and having seen a positive effect from it. Well, Brendan, uh, we're bringing this episode of the human centric investing podcast to a close, but it wouldn't be complete unless we got to learn a little bit more about you, because it's one of our favorite things we do on our podcast. We call it the lightning round. So Julie and I, it's okay with you, are going to ask you a series of questions and we're looking for top of mind answers first thing that enters your head. So for instance, I'm going to start out of with uh, uh, Brendan on a scale of one to 10. How good of a driver are you? You want gut reaction? I want your top of mind instant answer. All right. So my instant answer would be nine. My hesitant answer right after saying it out loud goes, whoa, hang on. That sounds really bad. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I feel pretty good about my driving skills, but then again, we know that the majority of Americans think that they're better than the average driver. So here I am just being one of the millions of people that think the exact same thing. So. Brendan, what's the best age? Ooh, uh, this is good because my wife and I disagree on this. She keeps, we're, we're in our thirties. She keeps telling me like her thirties are going to be her golden years. And I'm like, babe, no, 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 no. Hang on. We, we're already past our prime. The 20, our 20s, mid 20s was like, that was, that was where it was at. Now, of course, I don't know. I may look back on it and feel differently, but we, we, we talk about this a lot because I'm like, what do you mean your 30s? Like, there's a lot more stress, a lot more responsibility. I get that having kids is awesome, but do you remember those times where we would sit around for five hours a day, just binge watching TV shows and hanging out with friends like that? That was pretty great. 
How about uh, dogs or cats for you? For me, dog. Yellow Lab. His name's Roland. Uh, big part of the family. And so I'm going to go dog on that one. Are you a morning person or a night owl? That's, that one's easy. I don't need to process that for a second. Night owl. In fact, I always I joke with people and say, you can't trust anything that I say before 9 a.m. I don't even know what I'm saying if it's not at least 9 a.m. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm at my peak. It takes me later in the day, but I'm at least functioning by the time 9 a.m. rolls around. Beach house or lake house? Beach. Easy. Are you messy or neat? Yeah, perspective is going to be everything here, right? Uh, is this a spe I'm going to put it on a spectrum and say one is messy and 10 is neat. Uh, and I'm probably a six. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for letting us get to know your human-centric side today. And for those listening who are interested in Brendan's work, be sure to check out his podcast called The Human Side of Money and his website, wiredplanning.com, for more in-depth learning, resources, and to engage with Brendan directly. Again, thank you so much for joining us on our Human-Centric Investing Podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great questions. It was really hard at the end not to ask those the, the lightning round questions back to you guys. I was really I really wanted to hear what you had to say. But uh, no, this is great. Uh, thank, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of our featured guests who are not affiliated with Hartford Funds.